This is the Straight Truth Podcast, biblical answers to difficult questions from a Christian worldview. Pastor, on this podcast, we've talked occasionally about things like besetting sins, um, specifically Hebrews 12.1, the writer says, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and saying this to believers. And then we have these exhortations from Paul in a couple places, Romans 8, to put to death the deeds of the body, mm-hmm. Colossians 3, to mortify the sins or to put to death what is earthly in you, these things. So there's this understanding in the Christian life that we still deal with sin even though we've been saved and uh, even though we're justified before God and for all time and our sins have completely been forgiven. So our question, our question is this, you know, if, if sins are always going to be in our life, how do we actually mortify them? What, what do we actually do if these sins are sort of always going to be clinging so closely to us? Yeah, if I understand the question correctly, it's, it's sort of if, if, um, if you could mortify them, why do they keep resurrecting? Right, right. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, yeah. <laughs> if you yep. could put them to death, then, then how is it that they still stay so alive? Mm-hmm. And I think the answer is is that you, we have to go on putting them to death. They, you know, they um, they do on this side of glorification reappear. So so putting them to death, mortifying the deeds of the body means dealing with those sin issues in light of our real death to sin and our real new life in Jesus Christ. Mm. So that's how we mortify them. We're dealing with those sins in accordance with the truth as it is in Jesus. So let me give a passage that I think kind of gives insight to this. Romans 6 verse 5 says... I was thinking about that too. Yeah. yeah. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now what's amazing to me is, Josh, most people read that verse, I think, and they're thinking future resurrection, glorification. And there's no doubt that in Romans 6 that that's in view to some extent. But there's so much of Romans 6 that that is saying something very different. It's not, hey, the day is coming when you won't have to deal with, you you will overcome sin because of a resurrection. No, No, the message is you can know a real, you know a real freedom right now with respect to sin because of what Jesus has done for you. So let me, let me continue. We know that our old self, we know that our old self, who I was before I met Jesus, right, was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Uh, Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Then here's a key, key phrase. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Mm -hmm. Now, let's just stop there. In what sense did Jesus die to sin? Mm -hmm. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. In what sense did Jesus die to sin? Answer, he came into the world with a particular mission regarding sin. He, w- he came into the world to be our sin sacrifice, to die on behalf of our sins. He died that death once and for all. That never needs to be repeated, which is to say Jesus now has a relationship to sin that is different than when he came into the world. He's accomplished it. It's done. It's finished. In fact, he goes on to say this, 
The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin mm -hmm. and alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's something about Jesus' death to sin that informs my death to sin. Mm -hmm. He came into the world, particular relationship to sin. It's now finished. It's done. He lives unto God. All right. The person I was in Adam, the person I was before Christ, I was enslaved to sin. Having now been united with Christ, that relationship to sin is forever changed. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm no longer a debtor to sin. I don't have to serve sin. At any given moment, with any, any decision, I can choose now in Jesus Christ to say no to sin and yes to Christ. I didn't have that capacity before I knew Jesus, mm. but now I do, to say no to sin and yes to Christ. Mortifying sin is to regard myself as dead to that sin, right? I'm not, I'm not in debt to it. I'm mm. not enslaved to it. I don't have to say yes to it. So to mortify sin is to put it to death by agreeing with the, the Word of God about my relationship to sin, which is I am now dead to sin, mm -hmm. but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Mm. And, and so moment by moment, choice by choice, decision by decision, that's how you put sin to death in your life. You agree with the gospel about your relationship to sin in Christ, and you make choices in light of that. When a believer gives himself or herself to sin, they are living like they're still a slave. They're living like they're still in Adam. Mm. And so you need to make choices that agree with the fact that you are in Christ Jesus. Are you a slave to that sin? I am not. Do you then have to give in to this sin? Mm. I do not. Mm -mm. Then what do you do in this moment? Mm. You, you put it to death by saying no to it mm -hmm. and yes to Jesus Christ mm. for this moment, for this choice. Mm -hmm. And as we do that, not with perfection, as you say, Josh, mm -hmm. we're not yet glorified. We're going to stumble. Mm -hmm. And what do you do when you stumble? You repent and you get up and you walk again. Mm -hmm. But if you're truly saved, that, that doesn't become an excuse for sin. Romans 6 addresses that as well. Mm -hmm. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Mm -hmm. By no means, mm -hmm. right? God forbid, for, you know, perish the thought. No, we want to serve Christ and we have that capacity. That's what mm -hmm. he's telling us in Romans 6. You now have the capacity to do what, to do what is now a new desire in your heart due to salvation, mm -hmm. to live righteously. Mm -hmm. You can. It won't be perfectly until you are glorified, but it will be the pattern of your new life in mm -hmm. Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So two things are at work here. There's the one is kind of like a, um, a reshaping or understanding of your own identity. Yes. Consider yourselves that, that you are dead to sin and alive to Christ and God. There's that. Right. And then there's what you're saying, the further putting to death of any other kind of sin that is creeping in. It's making choices yes. that conform to that understanding. Okay. It's a new identity in Jesus Christ. Therefore, with this situation, this temptation, this sin, I've got to make choices that conform mm. to my understanding of yeah. that identity. I also think that the terminology mortifying or putting to death, I think about times in the Old Testament where, the, where someone was instructed to destroy everything, but they mm. let certain parts of it oh, yeah. you know, live. Yeah, Saul. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if I'm going to mortify sin, I can't, I can't give it oxygen. Mm -hmm. I can't give it room to live. I can't give it room to breathe. Mm -hmm. If I'm really serious about dealing with this sin, then as our Lord said, if my eye offends me, let me pluck it out. If my hand mm -hmm. offends me, let me cut it off. Are you really mm -hmm. wanting to overcome this sin? Then mm -hmm. kill it, yeah. right? Yeah. You, you, don't just, you don't just tether it. Mm -hmm. You don't just put chains on it. Yeah. You, you, you slay it. Mm -hmm. Let me do whatever is necessary 
to overcome that sin, mm-hmm. right? And so I would ask any brother or sister who has a besetting sin, can you honestly say mm-hmm. you're taking every step you can mm-hmm. to kill it? Mm-hmm. You're, are you giving it oxygen? Mm-hmm. You know, you're kind of putting it over in a corner, waiting until you want to reaccess it, mm-hmm. or are you killing it? So we mortify sin by, by dealing with it in agreement with our new identity in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Moment by moment, choice by choice, temptation by temptation. Pastor, the glorious truth articulated in the gospel, Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So my question here is, if all our sins were canceled at the cross and I've received complete forgiveness, uh, past, present, future sins, I've received that, then why do I still need to confess my sins? And if all of my sins are forgiven, why should I pursue holiness? Yeah. I I think we have to make a distinction between uh, what we might refer to as judicial forgiveness and fatherly forgiveness. So judicial forgiveness, your guilt before God that would result in your condemnation, your final, your damnation. Mm -hmm. All of your sins, past, present, and future are now fully forgiven as you've embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. You're justified, you're declared right with God. So if you think about God like a judge in his courtroom, you've been, de- been declared now righteous. The death of Christ answering for your sins, the righteousness of Christ answering for your standing before God. You now stand clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. That's how God views you from a legal point of view. That's your standing and, and that's for forever. So all your sins washed away, all your sins atoned for as a Christian. But then you go, for example, to 1 John chapter 1, mm-hmm. and you read that a person who says he's never sinned mm-hmm. is a person who doesn't know God. A person who denies that, he's a, that he sins now is a person who doesn't Deceiving. see the truth as it is. He's self-deceived. So what is a believer? Someone who confesses his or her sins. So let me read that. First uh, John chapter one verse five. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So you have three categories there. You have the person who says, I've never sinned. Uh, That person, verse 10 says, makes God a liar. His word is not in them. You have a person who has concluded he has no sin. Verse eight says that person's self-deceived. The third person is, is who we are and how we ought to be living, and that is we confess our sins. We say the same thing about our sins that God says about them. That's not seeking God's forgiveness in a judicial sense, or else we'd be saying that if we died with some unconfessed sin, we would have to pay for it in hell. 
it's not what John's talking about. He's talking about the kind of confession that belongs to fellowship. That's the whole thing in 1 John chapter 1. Who has fellowship with God? Who is in the fellowship? Who has a relationship with God? So this is a confession that belongs to fellowship. And so our God is our Father. Just as we correct our children, train our children, so God deals with us. And one aspect of enjoying the fellowship that we have with God is agreeing with God when we have sinned and repenting of those sins, turning from those sins. We've we've been saved into a life of perpetual repentance. And so one of the marks that we're a child of God is we confess our sins. We agree with God about them. And that confession is constructive for our fellowship. It's how we go on growing, walking with God in an ongoing way. So it's not not, uh, God as judge, it's God as father. This is the distinction. So this is like redemption accomplished and applied, like the old book uh, has said. It has been accomplished, and and all of our sins are for, are forgiven at the cross, nailed right. to the cross, and yet this ongoing, um, as an act of holiness and devotion to the Lord, this ongoing um, uh, seeking the Lord for forgiveness of present sins, as we are being sanctified, leading to eternity, is what you're saying. Absolutely, and and again, I would go back to that distinction in my mind between judge and father. Mm-hmm. You and I being in a position where we're at odds with God as judge, that's been settled. Christ settled that with his shed blood. He answered for us when we received him. Our sins are forgiven. His righteousness imputed to us on our account before God. God as judge, there's nothing to fear. Christ has answered for us. God as father, there's this ongoing relationship that involves acknowledging what we've done wrong. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, with my own children. They're my children on their best days. They're my children on their worst days. I love them constantly. Mm -hmm. But for us to enjoy that relationship, there are times they have to acknowledge that they've done wrong. Mm -hmm. The difference, of course, being there are times I also have to acknowledge that I've done wrong. In God's Mm -hmm. case, there's no such thing. Mm -hmm. He's a perfect father. He never does wrong. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's entirely on the children to acknowledge our wrongs. But that's a part of enjoying fellowship with God. So what we suffer when we sin is not the loss of fellowship. Mm. You're either in the fellowship or out. Right. What we suffer is we lose the joy of salvation. We lose mm. the joy of that fellowship. And God will even correct us, chasten us. Mm-hmm. He scourges every son whom he receives. Mm. So at times, in order to um, lift the discipline of the Lord, we have to acknowledge what we've done wrong. Mm. And then there's not just that fatherly kind of forgiveness, but he, he changes the way that he's dealing, dealing with us based upon our willingness to acknowledge what he's getting after in the way that he's dealing with us. Under the terms of the new covenant, Jeremiah um, 31, so we, we, we have this phrase that uh, God will remember our sins no more. In what way is this ongoing uh, um, seeking the Lord for forgiveness, this restoration of the joy of our, of our fellowship with him? In what way are those two things tied together. Yeah, obviously God is just describing things there in a way that we can relate to as human beings. And when he says he remembers them no more, <clears throat> I would say that has to do with the judicial aspect mm-hmm. of forgiveness. They're gone. They're truly forgiven, mm-hmm. not to be brought against us at the judgment. They were, they were brought against us at the cross. Christ mm-hmm. took to himself the punishment that our sins deserve. That's true of every believer. So my sins have been judged. They were never swept under the rug. They were never ignored. My sins were judged justly, truly, in the body of God's own son at the cross. He paid for them all. And they're, they're never going to be brought up again. So this idea that one day I'm going to stand before 
the judgment of God and there's going to be a screen, a movie. You know, he's mm-hmm. going to play all my sins before me. Uh, no, those, those were answered for at the tree. So that's, I think, what Jeremiah is referring to. Remember no more in, in that sense. But even that's using human language, you know, to, to communicating to mm. us in our smallness so that we mm. can understand. God knows. Mm. Uh, he, it's not been taken out of God's mind. Right, of course. He knows. But in, in the case of our sins today, the Lord, God the Spirit, will often remind us of mm. what we've done wrong, that we might confess those wrongs. He'll bring them mm. to our attention. Mm-hmm. So God obviously knows those things and remembers them and brings them to our attention that we, for our good, that we might confess them and put them away. So this is a question that we get often, and it could be that we've even answered it within another question uh, previously, but it has to do with degrees of sin. And, and you can understand why um, this is a challenging question. Um, the question goes like this, does God view all kinds of sin the same, or does he regard some as greater than others? And I guess the attendant question is, is, is there a punishment that's greater um, let's just say in hell, um, then, then, then maybe others will experience. Are there greater rewards in heaven than maybe some who, who know Christ will experience? Yeah, I think there are indicators in the New Testament that there are degrees that exist both in terms of reward and in terms of punishment. And, you know, when our Lord was on the earth, he rebuked certain cities because if Sodom and Gomorrah had heard the things that they heard, they'd repented right, yeah. long ago, etc. So I do think with greater light comes greater responsibility. You know, I were talking before we started this, you know, in the book of Hebrews, there's a reference to the fact that, you know, there's, there's a greater punishment for those who now have heard the gospel, been exposed to the truth of the Christ who has come. Mm-hmm. And when you tread underfoot the blood of the Son of God, right. how much worse punishment can be expected? So mm-hmm. I think there are indicators of degrees of punishment and degrees of, of reward. We can also say that, that while every sin is worthy of death from the standpoint of God's holiness, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6 says. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the wages of sin is death. Even though all sin is equally damnable from that standpoint, Mm -hmm. all sins are not the same in terms of their effect in the human realm, in Mm -hmm. terms of their effect in the relational realm. So Christ talked about the Pharisees and how they would tithe down to the very herbs present in their garden, but they were neglecting the weightier matters of the law. So even when you consider God's commands, there are certain things that are weightier than others. The repercussions are greater, the effects are greater. So, so I do think it's, it's true to say that there are degrees of sin with respect to their, their effect, but all sin is sinful and all sin is damnable. And, and so that's what I'd like for us to think about just for a moment together is, mm-hmm. you know, what makes sin sinful? Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we think about disobeying the commands of God, transgressing the commands of God. What really is the sinfulness of sin? And at the end of the day, it is, it, it is an attack on God himself, mm-hmm. on what he deserves from us as his creatures. It, it is a, a bold attack on his honor when we would take something that he has made clear to us as human beings and disregard it, mm-hmm. knowingly in some cases, stepping across the line. I mean, he has told us these things are worthy of death, mm-hmm. and yet we go on in them anyway. And so it, it, is, it is the disregarding, it is the lack of reverence 
for who God is. It is the disregarding of His honor and His glory and His worthiness mm -hmm. that makes sin exceedingly hateful. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes we're asking about, I'm not saying this person is, but sometimes this question about degrees of sin, it's about whether we can afford to do something or not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this one's really bad, mm -hmm. and this one is kind of bad. <laughs> and, and we forget what makes all sin sinful. And in, in that, if we think about it from, the, from that standpoint, then even the smallest transgressions would be something that I don't want to be guilty of. So just taking the sin of adultery as, as an example, our Lord said that if, if a man looks upon a woman to lust after her, he's committed that sin in his heart already, right? I mean, you're getting to the very root of what is involved in every physical act of adultery. It begins in the mind, the heart. It is, according to the Old Testament, it's a covetous, uh, the sin of covetousness. It's coveting someone else's wife or a woman who's not your wife. So that's a serious sin. But you read the book of Proverbs warning young men about sexual sin, and it's described like taking steps down to the grave. Yeah. So, yeah. so he's being warned, and he goes on to, writer of Proverbs warns about all sorts of things, how it's going to affect this man's life. So you're warned then about the sin, not just at the heart level, but if it's physically committed, all of the repercussions of that sin in one's physical life as well. And those two things are not the same. So for a man to lust after a woman in his heart is, is great sin. It is to be rejected and cut off at that level, what goes on in our minds and in our hearts. But to say that the, the, the relational effects are exactly the same as if a man commits that sin physically, that would not mm -hmm. be true. And so we, we, we can note degrees of, of the effects of sin, I think, in those sorts of ways and under, understand why we can make those distinctions. But we must hate sin at the level of its offense against God. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the sinfulness of sin is, is the fact that it doesn't reverence God as it should. Is this what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you have heard us said, you know, this command... But I say to you, and it seems like what he says, I mean, you, you brought up lust as, as one example, but even just take anger with brother, I say to you, right. you're, you're committing murder in your heart or absolutely adultery in your heart. Like this is greater than what you previously thought. It's not this simple sin. There's a greater sort of weight to this. What, what is he doing there? Is that I think our Lord is dealing with what had, had become characteristic in many ways of the religion of his day and apostate, the apostate forms of Judaism, and that is they had externalized righteousness and sinfulness. Okay. And so he's, he's pointing to the, to the heart level of the commands of God, that true obedience is not just something external to us. It's manifested externally, but it's first internal, which also points to the need for the new birth. Mm -hmm. right? you, you, can, you can be trained up in a religious system and learn commands religiously. I mean, memorize huge portions of the Old Testament, talking about the Jews of the, of the days of Christ, and externally pay very close attention, tithing down to the herbs in your garden. But if you're not born again, mm -hmm. you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. Nicodemus, John chapter mm -hmm. three, mm -hmm. you know, truly, truly, I say to you, a man must be born again, born from above. So the, o the only way one can truly obey God, getting to the, to the marrow of the commands of God is if his heart has been transformed by the grace of God and he is regenerate, he's a new creation, he has new life. Mm -hmm. 
And when you, when you have that understanding of Scripture, now you understand that I can commit sin, not just in what I do with my body, but what goes on in my mind. Mm-hmm. And so to obey God, if we think mm-hmm. in terms of obedience and not sin, to obey God means taking hold of what goes on in my mind. I want to be faithful to my wife, not just with my body. I want to be faithful to her with my, my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And this even gets to the matters of gratefulness, right? Not being covetous. I want to be grateful for the wife that God has given me. I want to love her and be thankful for her. Mm-hmm. And when that's going on in my mind and heart, it doesn't leave room mm-hmm. for coveting what uh, someone else has. So, yeah, I think it gets to, I think what our Lord is doing in, in the Sermon on the Mount and other places in the New Testament is pointing us to what true obedience is. Mm-hmm. And in fact, what a true Israelite was. Yeah. Yeah. A true Israelite is not just someone who descended from Abraham physically, but someone who, who was... Uh, who belonged to the faith of Abraham, mm-hmm. who'd experienced the grace of God as Abraham had. So a true Israelite is someone who's, who knows God. Pastor, Christians constantly live in this tension between um, b- being a Christian, desiring to live for Christ, and yet still continuing to sin. And, and you sometimes wonder when you're living in that tension, does God even still love me mm-hmm. in the midst of it? Because we know from the scriptures, God will punish sin. The question is is more uh, framed this way. For Christians, does God still punish sin today? Or are we simply awaiting for a punishment to come um, when Christ returns and then we face the judgment seat of Christ? You know, Josh, I'm always amazed. We're we're going through the book of Romans right now in our church, and I'm, I'm just always amazed at how much teaching we find given to the Christian explaining what God has done in saving us. Mm-hmm. You know, just, just again and again, driving home to God's own people what God has done in saving us. And I think the reason why there's, there's such an, uh, an attention given to that is we're so forgetful. It's so easy for us to forget mm-hmm. what God has done for us in Christ. So what we learn is, is for example, as you study the book of Romans, is having been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we now have peace with God. Yeah. I mean, from the standpoint of God as our judge, there is no condemnation left for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation because Christ our Savior took upon Himself <clears throat> our condemnation when He died as our substitute on the cross. And we lack nothing to be accepted completely by God now because our righteousness before God mm-hmm. is not our own, mm-hmm. but it's God's gift to us. The, mm-hmm. the righteousness of God's Son has been imputed to our account, given to us as a gift, received again by faith. All our sins forgiven the moment we trust in Christ, a perfect standing with God the moment we, we trust in Christ. So when I consider God as judge, I have nothing to fear as a Christian, nothing. On my best days, I'm no more pleasing to God in that realm Mm -hmm. as on my worst days. On my worst days, I can't be, I'm not displeasing to God in the least from the standpoint of God as judge because God's pleasure in me is explained by His Son's Mm -hmm. perfect life and death and resurrection. Now, when you go to a passage like Hebrews 12 and you see God as Father to us, His children, we learn there that He disciplines His children. Mm-hmm. He scourges us. So now not God is judge, God is Father. Is it possible for me to displease the Lord? Yes. Is it possible for me to experience discipline for my sins? Yes. Mm. 
Uh, discipline that's painful, yes. Uh, is it true to say that, that God has made things in such a way that sin even carries its own punishments? I mean, it, it, is it true to say that just because I'm saved, now I can live in sin and there, there will be no repercussions? Of course not. So, so as a Christian, I still experience the repercussions, the ramifications of my sinning in the temporal realm. God still disciplines me and corrects me for my sinning because He loves me mm-hmm. in this temporal realm. So in that sense, am I punished for my sins? Yes. In the sense of God as judge and everlasting damnation and judgment of that sort? No. I stand before God completely accepted in His Son. So uh, and the next question, sort of an aside to this, is that you, you've stated before that the core message of the Bible is that all mankind has sinned, we're destined for hell and destined for punishment. Um, but Jesus came into the world, God sent His, sent his Son, uh, who takes on death and that penalty for us, and those who trust in Him uh, can have eternal life and have a right standing with God through Him, which is what you just explained. Right. Um, however, when I read the New Testament, this is, this is another question uh, alongside this, what's to say I read the New Testament and I'm constantly filled with my own guilt and my own worthlessness because I'm conscious of my sin even though I can have peace with God. What, what do you say to somebody um, who's experiencing that? Yeah, I, I say, again, why do you think the New Testament continues to explain the gospel to people who've received the gospel? Why does Romans 8, 1 say, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus? Why, why these kinds of statements? Because of the fact that we, we have a hard time remembering what God has done for us. Mm. Now, the Bible is also clear. Am I to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be. Mm-hmm. How shall we who have died to sin still live in it, the Bible says. Mm-hmm. So how do I deal with a guilty conscience? I confess my sins. I repent of my sins. Repentance didn't just take place the day I was converted. Repentance is a lifetime experience for the Christian. I repent daily. I repent multiple times throughout a day. But I must do that knowing what God has done for me and His Son. Hmm. So what I want to hold in tension is the idea that sanctification is learning what is pleasing to the Lord. I, I want to learn what pleases God. Sanctification involves the confession of sin. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 teaches, if I don't confess my sins, I'm not forgiven, which is to say I'm not, I'm not a believer. Show me someone who doesn't confess their sins, I'll show you someone who hasn't been saved. We have the Word of God. We have the Spirit of God. We know that we're sinning. So I hold these two things in tension, that I am daily confessing my sins, turning from my sins, repenting of my sins, pursuing a clear conscience, a good conscience in the sight of God. Yet, at the same time, I am one who has been fully forgiven, and I stand before God completely accepted in His Son. Mm-hmm. And, and these two things held together represent the perspective taught to me in the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And so, so Christian maturity is learning how these two things are both true at the same time. And so I'm not overwhelmed with guilt because I'm justified. Mm-hmm. But I don't take sin lightly mm-hmm. because I'm learning what's pleasing to God and I'm confessing my sins as they occur. And God, as my Father in love, disciplines me for my sins and mm-hmm. puts my feet on a safe and solid and sound pathway. So it's holding these two things together that is the Christian life.
Pastor Richard, our next question has to do with the conscience and the Christian life, especially a life of repentance, which is exhorted throughout the, uh, the scriptures. So if we desire to be uh, transparent before the Lord about our heart and, uh, and, and to be completely honest with the Lord about where we are, and we are often conflicted or convicted rather guilty about sins that happened maybe many years in the past, in what situations do we need to go back and make amends for those sins? Like um, go to somebody and, and seek their forgiveness for something that is done years in advance. So let's just give an illustration because I've heard something like this before. Um, say there's somebody that in college, 10 years prior, um, they're often convicted of a cheating in a, uh, in a class, mm-hmm. whether on a test or a quiz or something along those lines. And say that they have repented before the Lord about that, but it's been a long time and especially as they're moving on to a, the next stage of their education, they're going to a master's degree, and um, but they're conflicted um, about that that previous sin that they've that they've done, or maybe they've even sinned against uh, another person. And I've heard this one too. I know you have, and um, where in, in within a certain amount of time, it's okay to go back and seek forgiveness. But right. now it's been a long time. Yeah. So, um, in what situation should you go back and, and seek forgiveness, or maybe what would you even say to a young man? Mm-hmm. or a young woman who's asking you about this and what, what they might do because their conscience is really conflicted before the Lord about it. Yeah. So uh, I, I wish we had a, a blueprint for every situation to be able to tell people exactly what to do. We have principles from Scripture, but the application of those principles is going to require wisdom. And as we often say, we've said it on the podcast, we say it at our church, you know, you can't live the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. And mm-hmm. so some of these, these things become a matter of judgment and good judgment is judgment saturated with scripture that includes wisdom, which is how you apply the scriptures in any given situation. And so Josh, I would say, if I'm able to deal with this, to to clear my conscience by making a situation right, wherein it it will make sense (laughs) to the person that I am going to go to, where the, the results will be positive, not destructive, then I should. But if it's actually more beneficial for me just to deal with an issue between me and the Lord, mm. and it's not going to leave a, a permanent barrier between me and another person. I mean, this is one of the questions I would ask. Is there a barrier right now between mm-hmm. you and that person? Well, then clear the barrier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go, go make it right. Mm-hmm. But if there's not a barrier, then deal deal with your issue between you and the Lord. So, a barrier as a result of that specific sin, you mean? Yeah, so, so okay. a couple of situations that come to mind. There, there was a time, most people listening to this podcast will not be old enough to remember this, but I am. There was a time in, in, in evangelical churches in the 70s and 80s where it became very popular to have testimony services in churches where people would, would get up and share Mm-hmm. their confession of sin. Mm-hmm. Well, I have been in situations where people were confessing things about their attitude toward another person that mm-hmm. the other person had no idea about it. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. confessing sins from their past with their wife sitting there that their wife had no idea about these sins that had been committed. Mm-hmm. And those were situations where the, the brother could have dealt with himself and the Lord and it would not have injured the parties who ended up knowing what he was saying, it would have actually protected them against things that they had no idea of. So if I, if I have bitterness toward you, but you're totally unaware of it, mm-hmm. 
and, and I, I, I go between me and the Lord, make it right. It's not going to hurt you for me to do that. Mm-hmm. I, now, now my attitude's right toward you, mm-hmm. right toward the Lord. You had no idea. Mm-hmm. But if I start to tell you all the things about you that bother me, right, now all of a sudden you've got that in your head. Less than helpful. Yeah, right. it's less than helpful. Mm-hmm. So, so one of the things I would consider is, is this actually going to help mm-hmm. or is it going to hurt? Is this really about you trying to make things right with another person or is it about you trying to make things better for yourself? Mm-hmm. And I would say the way to ease your conscience in those situations is not to bring another person into it, but to go before the Lord and make it right. Mm-hmm. Right there. So let me give you a couple of texts that come to my mind that I think mm-hmm. relate, mm-hmm. at least loosely relate to this. Romans twelve eighteen says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Mm-hmm. Right? That text leaves room for things that are not possible, mm-hmm. for things that don't depend on us. So to the, to the degree that I can live peaceably with someone, uh, I should. But there are going to be situations where I, it's not possible. Mm-hmm. And I think in the same sort of way, we can, we can ask about the situation you raised. Is this really possible to make right? Mm-hmm. You know, cheating on a test in college 10 years ago. How, mm-hmm. how do I make that right? I make that right by purposing in my heart not to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. I make that right by instructing my children from my own example to say, you know, this is something that's plagued my conscience for years. Don't, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Is it really going to be helpful to go back to the institution 10 years later and tell them you cheated on a test. Mm-hmm. If someone feels like that's what they need to do, this is why I say it's a matter of judgment before mm-hmm. the Lord. If they believe they should do that, then go do that. And mm-hmm. I've known people who did that mm-hmm. and, and had their degree pulled as a result. Really? Yes, I oh have. Oh, my goodness. Wow. It was a seminary situation. Yeah, okay. Wow. So, so if that's what you believe you should do, then do it. But how about making it right with the Lord and not doing mm-hmm. that anymore and mm-hmm. making clear to your children this is something that you don't, you don't want to mm-hmm. do? So there are things that are possible and not possible. Mm-hmm. There are things that would help and there are things that would hurt. Another text, 1 Corinthians seven ten, To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Mm-hmm. Well, there clearly, God's people are being exhorted not to divorce each other. Yet, Paul envisions a situation where a divorce might happen that does not involve church discipline. Mm-hmm. So he's exhorting these people to stay married, but he holds out the possibility of a situation where a marriage is not tenable. We run into this sometimes as pastors here. Mm-hmm. You know, someone will come, they want to preserve their marriage, but there's a situation going on that makes that untenable. Mm-hmm. Maybe we're talking about a physical abuse situation. Maybe we're talking about uh, some sort of ongoing, unbroken sexual sin issue mm-hmm. that Finally, though, though they want to hold that marriage together with all their heart, they should depart from it and remain single mm-hmm. or else be reconciled to this person and then ask the Lord to change the situation so that reconciliation is possible. All that to say, in, in both Romans twelve eighteen and 1 Corinthians seven ten, there's an acknowledgement of what is possible and sometimes not possible. Mm-hmm. There's an acknowledgement of what we can do and what we can't do. And in the same sort of way, our conscience will sometimes be loaded down with things that we can't go back and fix. In those situations, we make it right between us and the Lord Hmm. and always ready to make it right with the injured party or whatever if given the opportunity, but the opportunity will not not always be there. I mean, I think back to to people I mistreated before I was a Christian. I don't even know where they are. How would I I do that? And am I I really tasked by the Lord? 
you know, to go through a phone book in the city yeah, exactly. of Houston and yeah. search them out. I mean, no. I don't believe so. That's mm. that's what my mind and conscience instructs me. Mm. I don't think I'm responsible for that. Mm. I have made it right in my heart with the Lord. If I were to meet that person, I would gladly try to make it right with them. Mm -hmm. But I don't feel compelled mm. to search them out throughout the city of Houston and find out where they are. Mm. The Lord knows. Mm -hmm. you know. What about guilt? So somebody's overwhelmed with the guilt of the yeah. decision. Given the situation I just described, then you're going to have to live out your theology. Mm. If, you, if you believe that salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, and that justification is a declaration from God that you're no longer guilty before Him, not because you're not guilty in yourself, but because you're now clothed with the righteousness of Christ and there's no guilt in Him, you're going to have to apply that to your own sense of guilt. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. How do I stand before God, guilty or forgiven? Mm -hmm. The answer, forgiven. Mm -hmm. Am I unwilling to make it right? That would be a different issue. Now, okay. that, that's a sin sure. issue. But mm -hmm. if I'm willing to do whatever the Lord would have me to do, but some of those things don't make sense, they're, they're not, it's not tenable, mm -hmm. then I, I'm going to have to put on my knowledge of what Christ has done for me. Mm -hmm. And I hate this terminology because it's so misused, but then forgive myself of what Christ oh, has yeah. forgiven me of. Mm -hmm. You know, walk in the forgiveness that is really mine. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's what we're called to do. When does one find peace after such a situation? Well, like once this? you apply that, that's where peace comes, mm -hmm. right? If I don't apply that, then I'm not gonna have peace. Mm -hmm. But if I really believe it and apply it to my own situation, then I can know, mm -hmm. I can know. You know, we live our lives emotionally out of what we know and count to be true. Mm -hmm. So the only way I'm going to have relief in the emotional realm, that sense of peace, is if I'm applying the truth and I really believe the truth. Mm -hmm. Am I truly forgiven? I am. Then there is my peace. Mm -hmm. Am I willing to be reconciled to this person? I am. Then there is my peace. I know that's mm -hmm. true. Now, I have a couple of situations in my own life, Josh, where I think there, there is a barrier between me and, and someone else. But with a clear conscience, I can say, I've done everything that I know to do yep. to bridge that gap. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, I can't do anything else. You know, as, as much as is possible, as much mm -hmm. as depends on you, mm -hmm. live peaceably with all. That's what I've got to, that's mm -hmm. the standard I've got to hold myself up to. Mm. And if I've done that, then I can rest in what God knows, what Christ knows, and what Christ has done for me. All right, Pastor, I want to bring up a question about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And this is often associated with the unforgivable sin is how people describe it. So this person asks, you know, what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and how they know if they've committed it? I want to read first this passage in Matthew 12. This is where there's a demon-oppressed man and uh, Jesus heals him. And then he's in this, you know, discussion with the Pharisees about, you know, about what took place. And they're jealous of him, of course. And, uh, and towards the end of that passage, this is in Matthew 12, uh, 30, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. So what does that mean? That, that seems really serious, and, um, and especially for a Christian. Yeah. Um, we, we know that in Christ, our sins are forgiven. They're erased, past, present, future. Our, our sins are covered at the cross. But this seems to be saying that there is a kind of unforgivable sin too. I wonder if you could explain that to us. Yeah, we talk about blasphemy. We're talking about something that's insulting to an outrageous degree. Hmm. Specifically, when we think about God, we're, we're thinking about thoughts, attitudes, words that insult God, that are dismissive of God, that mock God. 
In this case, an emphasis is on the spoken word. Verse 32, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So you can have blasphemous thoughts and attitudes, but in this case, you have blasphemous words, Mm -hmm. words that are spoken. And our Lord says in that verse that there's a kind of speech against the Spirit of God that will not be forgiven. He says, either in this age or in the age to come. And it's not uncommon that you meet with Christians, usually, I mean, people who are born again, who have come under some sort of fear or dread that they might not be saved because they fear they've committed this sin. That's Mm -hmm. usually where I've met with this, Josh, is people who are troubled because they feel like they might have committed this Mm -hmm. sin. So a few thoughts. One, this is just for me, this is just for Richard. I'm not certain that this particular sin can be committed today mm. be- because of the very nature of it in, in, in the text we just read, mm-hmm. which is you have the Son of God on the earth, the, the eternal Son incarnated, mm. performing miraculous works. And, and the significance of that is that they were signs, right? Mm-hmm. These are signs worked by the Father, by the power of the Spirit of God in and through the life of the Son of God. So this is God attesting to His own Son by mm-hmm. what He does. And people witness these things that they have no explanation for. Mm-hmm. In fact, there are things taking place that have never happened since the world began. Mm-hmm. And knowing, so I'm, I'm thinking specifically now about the Pharisees at one point saying, if we let Him go on like this, mm-hmm. Everyone will see these things he's doing and they're going to believe in him. I mean, so they're even out of their own mouths admitting things are taking place that ought to move people to Mm -hmm. believe in him as the Messiah. And yet not only are they not believing in him, not only do they want him dead, Mm -hmm. but they're attributing what he's done by the power of the Spirit to Satan. Mm -hmm. They're, They're taking what is light and they're calling it darkness. Mm. And they're taking what is the power and work of God and they're attributing it to Satan. Mm. That, that is really an unrepeatable sort of set of circumstances. To have God in human flesh standing before your eyes, performing signs worked by His Father, by the power of the Spirit in and through His life, and then attributing that to Satan. Mm-hmm. So, so it is to, to have, in a sense, it is to have full light You're not in the dark. You're not confused. In fact, he says something interesting here, Josh. He says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, well, that's Jesus, Mm -hmm. will be forgiven. But as you you know, that that title, Son of Man, emphasizes his humanity, right? So it's possible to see Jesus and not have a full understanding of who he is, to see him as a man, Mm -hmm. to misunderstand him as just a man, to speak harsh things against him, thinking he's just a man, and be forgiven that. Saul of Tarsus, the Apostle Paul, is an example of that. I mean, he was breathing out threats against Christians, putting Christians to death. He would have absolutely denied that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God until he met the resurrected, glorified Christ on the road to Damascus, Mm -hmm. and he believes he's saved. So obviously that sin of his former thoughts about Jesus, that sin was forgiven. That's, that's what our Lord is talking about. You can get him wrong at one point in your life story and yet be forgiven and be saved and get him right before you die and, and come to faith in Christ. But someone who has been given such light that they know who he is but don't want to admit it. 
They know who he is, but they, they want to actually take what they've seen, unexplainable apart from God, and attribute that to Satan. Mm-hmm. There's no, no more light to give you at that point. Mm-hmm. What more can be given to you that you don't already have? And, and I think that's the danger, that in, that in that fullness of light, the danger being described, that mm-hmm. in the fullness of revelation, in the fullness of light, even, even light in you, you have been enlightened. You know who he is, and then with that kind of light, you reject him. There's nowhere else for you to go. There's no hope for such a soul. Uh, I think it's interesting. Our Lord never gives us the, the evidences of when someone's committed that sin. Right. It's a warning, mm-hmm. but he doesn't, he doesn't attempt to quantify it. Mm-hmm. You know, this, now, here's when you know you'll have committed it. He mm-hmm. doesn't do that. It's a warning. We find similar things because someone might, might say, well, Richard, I'm not sure about that idea that it's, it's not able to be committed in our day because you have similar warnings, for example, post-resurrection, post-ascension in the book of Hebrews. Mm-hmm, that's true. Uh, Hebrews yeah. 10, 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and of fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? And on he goes. They might ask, is that the blasphemy of the Spirit? Well, that, that text doesn't say that that's the sin being committed in this case. But I would say it's similar. It's similar to what we talked about there in Matthew 12 in that what's envisioned here is we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. I've been enlightened. I know what the truth is. And then I go on rejecting it anyway. But in this case, it doesn't say that sin can't be forgiven. It says what the only thing left for you if you, if you go on in this way is judgment. Uh, there's nowhere else for you to go. There's no other Savior given to men except Jesus. You reject Him. There's no other Savior for you. There's no other gospel than the gospel that's been delivered to you. If you know it, if you've heard it, if you're enlightened to it, and then you reject it, there's no hope. There's nowhere else to go. So there's a similarity, but I I don't know that it's exactly the same sin Mm -hmm. that Jesus is describing in Matthew 12. So let me wrap it up by saying Mm -hmm. this. If you care whether you've committed that sin or not, so, so let's just say I'm wrong and the sin can still be committed today. Okay. Blasphemy of the Spirit, which is unforgivable mm-hmm. and it's, it's eternal, cannot be forgiven. If you care about whether you've committed it or not, you haven't. Because what's envisioned there in, Mark, in Matthew 12 is someone who sees and with viciousness, I mean with mm-hmm. blasphemy, rejects the truth. Okay. So, so that's not the, the, the burdened, in many cases I've met it, believer mm-hmm. who's, who's afraid they've committed that sin. If you're, if you're concerned, you haven't. In addition, we want to remember the character of God. Uh, our God is not cruel. Mm-hmm. He's good. He's loving. He delights in mercy. He's not hiding himself. He's revealed himself to the extent that, he, that we had in Jesus of Nazareth. We had God with man, Emmanuel. Mm-hmm. I mean, he came in person, God has. In the, and in the person of his son said to us, here I am. 
And here is how uh, you can be saved. So God is not, not playing mind games with people. You know, they want to be saved, but they can't be saved. They want to believe the gospel, but he's withholding something from them. That's not the character and nature of our God. He pleads with sinners. He has us present the gospel in such a way that we exhort people to believe. Mm -hmm. This is the New Testament pattern that we see. So, so God is pleading with sinners to be saved, not playing mind games with sinners to keep them lost. So when, when someone is, comes under a fear that they wonder whether or not they've committed this sin, go to the gospel. Mm -hmm. Go to the gospel. Hear God's promises. Hear God's pleadings. And believe the gospel and then rest in the knowledge that the gospel comes not just with demand but with promise. The gospel, it, it, it has a command to repent and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it also comes with promise that everyone who believes in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Mm -hmm. So God isn't playing mind games with you. He pleads with you. He offers himself to you. You trust in his son. He saves you. And then know you're saved by grace alone, mm -hmm. by faith alone, in Christ alone. And so if you believe, you are saved. Mm -hmm. And you can, can rest your mind and heart and eternity on the surety of God's promises. He, he's a, a, an altogether truthful God. He never lies. Mm -hmm. So believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Straight Truth Podcast. Now, Straight Truth is listener supported. So if you'd like to find out ways how you can help us to continue to produce this podcast, you can go to our website and find out ways to do that, straighttruth.net. At that website, you'll also find links to all of our previous episodes and our social media channels. So be sure to check it out. Straight Truth is a production of Walking in Grace Ministries, the preaching and teaching ministry of Pastor Richard Caldwell. For more information, go to walkingingrace.org.